This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. The land on which I am lucky enough to raise my son always was and always will be Aboriginal land. The Anna Wintour thing was pretty extraordinary. 14 months before I got that email, I'd never worked in magazines or media. And here, like the doyen of publishing globally has asked for me to fly to New York to meet with her. For years, I was like, oh, I'll have a baby later. You know, I just, I don't, it was like, I felt like it was almost an inconvenience and I would have to stop my career in order to do so. And in hindsight, that probably wasn't the most sensible choice. I've injected myself over all of those years approximately 480 times. When Stephen and I said to her, why do you want to do this? She said, when I'm 80 and sitting in my rocking chair, I want to look back and go, I helped someone. Publicly, a burgeoning business that led her to New York for a meeting with Anna Wintour and to sharing the stage with Richard Branson on multiple occasions. And privately, eight years, 18 rounds of IVF and a friend willing to carry her baby. This is an incredible story of how Collective Hub founder Lisa Messenger has made work alongside her challenging journey to parenthood work. Here, we talk staying open, how she got through 16 phone calls telling her the news she didn't want to hear, and what the surrogacy journey has looked like. I'm Lucinda, this is Ready or Not, and I don't think there's many words worthy enough to describe this incredible woman. So here she is, Lisa Messenger. I am such a big fan of your work. It's quite surreal to be interviewing you. But for those that don't know you, could you please introduce yourself and your family? So I'm Lisa Messenger and I'm kind of, I mean, I know we'll dig into this. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, author, jack of all trades. And my family, my very naughty hubby-to-be just poked his head through the door. He loves to be part of everything. And my dog, Benny, is on the floor behind me. And we have a baby coming in a few months, so a baby boy. So that is me. That is my family. For anyone that doesn't know your career as well as I do, can you take us back to the start and talk us through your incredible career? I think what I, how I try and unpack it is to give people lessons along the way because in hindsight, my career makes kind of perfect sense because even though everything at the time what made no sense logically or sequentially looking back it actually prepared me for exactly where I am today so I actually started when I left school I went to England for a couple of years and I was teaching horse riding you could argue nothing to do with what I do now which is essentially I have a, a global media business but in a way, it did because I was out there shoveling shit at four o'clock in the morning and just like it really got me, you know, on the tools and unafraid of hard work and got my mindset probably where it needed to be and like a whole lot of other things and independence because I went straight from school overseas for two years. I'd never been overseas before then. Um, I said to my parents, I don't want any money. I want to do this on my own. So like all of that kind of makes sense in terms of 
building resilience and independence and all of that kind of thing. I then worked in conference and event management and real estate and like lots of like little jobs jumping in and out. And I think that's actually really important to learn just to try lots of things and get a taste for little bits and pieces because I tried lots of things and from there I kind of got clearer and clearer on the pieces that I loved and ultimately have kind of incorporated those into what I now do as a career. Um, in my last job, I mean, this is, makes me sound very old, but my last job was in 2001. So I started my own business, my first business in October 2001. So this year it's 22 years of having my own business. <laughs> Which is like, I, I'd like to say I started when I was 10, not quite the case. But um, but the last job I had before starting my own business is probably an important one because I was working in sponsorship. So I was doing, I was brokering deals for the Wiggles and Cirque du Soleil and Barry Humphreys, who sadly just passed away. So yeah, I was doing all of these deals. And what I learned in that was to swap um, corporate dollars for like a tangible asset and that really formed a lot of the basis of my thinking even though I was only in that job for eight months it really taught me so much and so from there I started essentially a marketing agency but I say it in inverted commas because I really didn't have any specific experience in marketing I just loved it but the lesson there is I started over-servicing, undercharging, being everything to everyone. I didn't have systems and processes in place. And so I kind of say I spent 11 years being everything to everyone and not really having great systems and processes in place. So I was a slow learner. But 2013, I started Collective Hub as a print magazine. And, you know, we can dig in and out of any of this. Um, there are so many lessons in that because within 18 months that print magazine was in 37 countries despite me never having worked in media or magazines or you know anything else but why that worked was I just had such a passion for it and I felt so on purpose to bring stories of entrepreneurs thought leaders together and yeah so that kind of exploded I had that for five years and it we did 54 issues around the globe um I had an email from Anna Wintour 14 months in or from her office saying the subject line was just from the office of Anna Wintour and it was one of her three PAs said Anna wants you to meet with her in New York so I flew to New York I shared a stage with Richard Branson five times anyway and Fast forward, close the magazine, and now what I essentially do is I have a main business, which is Collective Hub, which is threefold. It's print, digital, and events. So the print now is we do 40 to 60 books, journals, affirmation cards, and dated products a year. And then digital, we produce a lot of masterclasses and courses, and then events. Um, I speak kind of all over the world at events now, which is amazing, and we also run some events. So that is like a very smooshed version of my career and we can dig into any and all parts of it. <laughs> Before we go any further, I need to know more about Anna Winter. What happened oh. when you met her? Yeah, so um, I mean, that's the thing, right? I literally, in I, I, I say it's a defining moment because I'm a big believer when you're on purpose, it's extraordinary how the serendipity and then the synchronicity and the kind of being in flow and things just 
open up. And even when it's hard, it's kind of easy. And I literally went in sort of February 2013 from being a nobody and nobody knew who I was at all to like launch this magazine. It just exploded. I've never been part of something with just such momentum. So the Anna Wintour thing was pretty extraordinary because as I said, like 14 months before I got that email, I'd never worked in magazines or media. And here, like the doyen of publishing globally has somehow gotten a copy of the magazine, has asked for me to fly to New York to meet with her. So that was a pretty big, like pinch myself moment. But what I say about that is like, I remember at the time I put it on Facebook, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to meet Anna Wintour in New York. And every single person commented oh my god what are you gonna wear and they kind of missed the point although I did have a stylist and I was like you know because <laughs> she's so into like fashion and what she looked you up and down <laughs> yeah but what you need to remember in these instances is like she asked to meet with me so obviously something that we were doing with collective hub had gotten on her radar and she wanted to find out how we were doing it and it was at a time when you know Anna was at the helm of Condé Nast and which is Vogue and you know so many of the extraordinary magazine and media titles around the world and everything was being done the way that it had always been done they were you know selling ads essentially and you know it was a it was an ads and a subscription model and that wasn't working and a lot of magazines in 2013 were closing but we kind of came out of the gates suddenly had this enormous footprint in 37 physical countries. And I was doing things very differently because largely that came out of naivety. And also when I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that I had um, been doing sponsorship deals with some big global brands like the Wiggles and Cirque du Soleil, that had really put me in good stead for doing things differently with the magazine. So she wanted to meet with me to ask like, you know, what are you doing? How are you doing this differently? Which was pretty extraordinary. So it was essentially like I was going in there to, for her to ask me <laughs> how I was doing it. And so my story is very much around, you know, if you believe in yourself and you're on purpose, it is quite extraordinary what can happen. In terms of the meeting itself, I will never forget. I walked in and she was in a, a glass boardroom and it was, there was a hallway in between. And on the other side of the hallway also a glass office which had grace coddington which the one with the hair <laughs> and she was i on the love phone. grace coddington yeah so do i she was on the phone and i literally felt like i was in like the devil wears prada or the september issue i was like have i just like walked into a movie set and so i was facing like Grace's office and Anna was like between Grace and I and so I, the whole time Anna and I were talking I kind of see Grace in the background with you know the hair and I was like wow this is pretty extraordinary the first thing I mean Anna's known for not necessarily being very warm and the first thing she said to me was what's your profit like literally the first thing that came out of her mouth and I wasn't really prepared for that and so I just was like nothing <laughs> which was kind of perfect in a way because it was nothing and also I think she liked the honesty and so we both had a bit of a laugh and I think that you know broke down some barriers and then we just talked and she expressed interest in you know what I was doing with Collective Hub and also I then ended up having a meeting um, a couple of days later with Charles Townsend who was 
I mean, it's actually quite extraordinary. He's He was at the time the global CEO and went on to be global chairman of Condé Nast um, because they were talking about rolling Collective Hub under the Condé Nast banner globally. So that was ex- like a pretty extraordinary moment to launch something little old me in Australia who'd never worked for any of that and suddenly have like the biggest guy in publishing endorsing my book and the biggest female in publishing at the time you know asking to have a meeting with me and that was really the start of what has become a pretty extraordinary life and career. New York would have felt miles away did you ever have any struggles with self-belief? Like, was that a moment where imposter syndrome started to leave the building or have you always been quite strong in that area? I mean, I think that's very much a learned a learned thing. So if I go back even before, like way, way back. So I said to you, I launched my company in 2001, but actually it wasn't until 2004 that I started to step into like, who is Lisa Messenger? Because... I sort of call October 2004 a very defining moment in my life because pre-2004, I really had no semblance of who I was. Um, I was living life according to other people's expectations. I was probably living in fear, guilt, shame, remorse, just like really, really lost. And how that manifested and how that sort of came out sideways was, you know, if you go back into childhood traumas real or perceived which I've done a lot of years of therapy on um you know it was like um issues of abandonment and low self-esteem and low self-worth and what happened for me was I started um drinking a lot in my 20s and you know very much identified as an alcoholic and I've been sober for 18 and a bit years now. Wow, congratulations. <laughs> yes, have not touched a drop in any way, shape or form. But the thing about that is it's not actually about the alcohol. I mean, we have more alcohol in our fridge than anyone I know. It's just that I choose not to drink it and we love a good party and we throw a lot of them and I'm always the first to dance on the table, but I just don't need alcohol anymore. <laughs> um, so the self-belief and the confidence has very much been a learned thing and that was about getting courageous enough to understand what was holding me back, um, how I was self-sabotaging, what my triggers were, um, what my pain was, you know, why I was, you know, acting out or what I felt the trauma points were. So yeah, it's been a lot of work and continuous. In fact, I popped on my Instagram this morning, you know, because we're having a bub in under three months now. Um, I, my partner and I are six and a half years he calls me um his wife but we're not actually married yet we must do that at some point but um you know we want to do some serious you know relationship counseling relationship coaching before we go into being parents I'm a big believer in continuous work and continuous self-improvement and not waiting till something's broken to fix it but actually having the tools whilst ever we have the ability to do it. Like, I really believe in that. It's not like I'm cured and I have all the answers now. It's, it's constant. 
Before we go into what it's taken for you to get here, when did those ideas start to form of starting your own family? And was that a stressful thought from that career point of view? That is such a good question. And I'm sure many, many A-type personalities like me, entrepreneurs, business people, you know, will relate to this. I think for so many years, I mean, the thing is, Lucinda, I love my career. I love my job. I love what I've consciously chosen to do every single day. And so, yeah, for years, I think, which I would urge people not to necessarily make the same mistake as me, for years, I was like, oh, I'll have a baby later. You know, I just, I don't, it was like, I felt like it was almost an inconvenience um, and I would have to stop my career in order to do so. And in hindsight, that probably wasn't the most sensible choice. But I just, I mean, I'm in a fortunate position because I just love what I do every day. But um, it has been a long journey. So in um, 2015, um, Stephen always says to me, oh, God, how do you remember dates? I just have this memory for dates timelines to the like precise moment but in 2015 I actually um got pregnant with my previous partner and um and I lost that baby to a miscarriage but it was the first time I think that I kind of had this oh I really you know I felt into it when I got pregnant I was like oh I'm actually excited about this and I was and I kind of met with my team and I was like I think this is the path I'm going to go down and I started getting my mindset finally into that so that's a long time ago that's eight years ago and then that kind of opened something up in me where I was like okay maybe I can do this at, you know maybe I can have it all maybe I can have a career and a baby at once with precision planning if I've managed to do all these other things and break the mold and be disruptive then I could do this I've got this and so it hasn't been, again, a logical sequential path because that partner and I then broke up. And um, later that year, I went to Bali. And on my birthday, which is the 29th of December, I was like, I just want to go to an orphanage. And I, I'm always like, I don't want things to be about me. I'd rather go and like do something for someone else. So I went to this orphanage in Bali called the Judy O'Shea Orphanage. And there was a little eight-month-old baby, Gracie, lying on kind of a mattress. And I was like, oh, this baby. So I ended up spending three days with her. And then I tried to adopt her. So which was almost impossible for so many reasons. I tried to go down so many pathways. And the following year, so 2016, I was single still. And I was like, right, I am going to do this on my own. So I actually did two rounds of IVF with a sperm donor. And I was like, I'm going to do this. And then it didn't work. And so then Stephen and I met shortly after. And then, you know, took a while to realize, yep, we're going to be together. And then tried naturally. That wasn't working. So then went on another path of another 14 rounds of IVF. <laughs> um, and then got to where we are now, which is my beautiful, amazing, incredible girlfriend, Sarah, who is carrying our baby boy as our surrogate. But I can unpack all of that because there was a lot of um, emotional, physical and financial things that I and we went through to kind of get to that decision and you know people go oh how did you get a surrogate I'm like mm, well there was a lot of steps to actually get there from a mindset perspective and every other perspective. Lisa how did you show up to work every day going through 
14 IVF treatments that didn't lead to, or procedures that didn't lead to what you hoped it would lead to? The answer is, I don't know. <laughs> it's funny, again, looking back, because it's only since I've started talking about it publicly that I've kind of allowed myself to go back a bit into what it was actually like. I think when I was in it, I didn't talk about it publicly at all. And for anyone following me on social media knows I talk about pretty much everything publicly. <laughs> um, yes, you seem like someone that wears your heart on your sleeve. So that's telling as to how complicated it is to go through that. Yeah, so I didn't talk about it at all. It's very private about it. And only a couple of people at work and um, a couple of my close friends knew that we were going through it. But what it essentially means for anyone who hasn't done IVF is um, it, it means a lot sort of emotionally, physically and financially because emotionally and physically, it essentially meant for me, firstly, I hated needles. Like I had such a phobia of needles and I worked out, I've injected myself over all of those years approximately 480 times. So oh that's self-injection into my stomach which is a lot um then you're taking the hormones which you know i was actually okay for think about the first 11 or so and people were like oh how do you cope i mean you're horribly bloated and things but my mental hormones were okay like i know it affects people in really the last couple of rounds was horrible like i really was in a very dark space like it really messed with my chemicals in my brain and i could really feel that it wasn't a good place to be Physically, because if anyone does follow me on social media, I train every single day. Like part of my mindset piece is that I get up and every day I do, you know, at the moment it's F45. We lived in LA last year. It was Barry's. Um, every, most nights I do like a walk on the beach or some yoga or something. So I training is a really big part of, you know, how I stay mentally agile and how I switch off and all of that kind of thing and whenever you put an embryo in so um you know so egg collection then basically sperm and egg come together in the test tube an embryo gets inserted from that time you're not allowed to train or do anything that gets your heart rate up so for two weeks or 14 days every single cycle and I've done 16 myself now Sarah's done two every single time for 16 times I couldn't train for two weeks and then also I was like many people have, you know, complex lives because I do a lot of speaking all over the world. I had to carry needles um, with me through, you know, customs and everywhere, but also you need to inject yourself. You can choose like 8am and 8pm. So it's like the, about the same time every 12 hours. So you can choose 10am, 10pm, whatever it is. But what that meant was the injections go for maybe 10 to 14 days each cycle. I might be on a stage in America or Japan or like I was doing a lot of big speaking gigs for, you know, 7,000, 10,000 people, like big stage gigs. And so as well, or you've got to be able to time it. So the amount of times I spent like off stage, quick inject myself. Or, so it also was complex from that perspective. And then financially, we're in a fortunate position, you know, that I've been working for so many years. But IVF in Australia is $12,000 approximately per cycle. So, you know, we've now done 18 cycles. So last year we made a decision to sell our house in Sydney. Um, you know, even though we've been doing pretty well in business over the years and, you know, we've 
a bit older, so we've been stashing some cash, but we still had to make a decision to sell our house to actually fund this journey. So, and Stephen said to me, which was really important because it was really got me down. He was like, well, if we want a baby and that's the end result, then it really doesn't matter if we spend a dollar or a million dollars. Like if that's what we want. And that's again, a lesson in life, you know, like what are you prepared to give up or what are your priorities? And for us, definitely we've reprioritized and just gone, well, we're going to go all in and this is what we want. And so, yeah, to answer your question, that's a long way around, but um, it wasn't easy trying to do all of that in the background. And my whole brand and business is around positivity and which maybe is very fortunate, like <laughs> creating tools for people to live their best life and inspiration and education. So probably it helped me to write in a way because I really lent into what I was going through in order to create tools to support other people. Eight years, 18 rounds of IVF yes. and eventually making the decision for your beautiful friend, Sarah, to carry your baby. Yes. When do you decide to pull up stumps on IVF and how does that conversation start of your friend caring for you? Well, yeah, the pull-up stumps is an interesting one because I'm, you know, because I've taught myself over the years to mindset flip, even though, you know, I had 16 phone calls of not this month, you're not pregnant. Somehow what I would do every month was I'd kind of like go through the wave of disappointment, but then I'd quickly try and change it and be like, yay, I can go train. So it's so pretty much as soon as the phone call came, I was like, right, I'm going to go smash myself. <laughs> like, that's what I kind of did to kind of keep getting through it. Um, and even now, it's sort of funny. We have five embryos still in a freezer. And every now and again, even though Sarah's pregnant, every now and again, I'm this crazy and stupid. <laughs> every now and again, a false sense of like optimism washes over me and I'm like, maybe I'll just pop one in myself again. And I'm like, no, I'm not really... stupid. <laughs> but every now and again, I'm like, I'm the fittest I've ever been. I'm so healthy at the moment. Maybe I'll just keep popping them in. So, but the decision, again, I think things happen over time in life and I'm a big believer in listening to the signs and just watching because they're always there and the timing might not be right but the signs are there if we're open to them so Sarah and I met 12 and a half years ago she was one of my first editors working on a number of books and she's edited a lot of my books so she's worked for me for 12 and a half years and over that time we became friends and then in 2018, we had a coffee together. We recently worked out kind of the timing of that. We we're like, when did that conversation happen? And I was kind of in the infancy of IVF. And Sarah said to me, which is so bizarre, she was like, if you ever want a surrogate, I'd be really interested, you know, and open to carrying your baby. And I was like, what? No, like, thank you, but no. Like, because back then, we, I think anyone in life, we, go through probably stages it's not like we just woke up and went let's have a surrogate like when I met Stephen he was like let's definitely try to have a baby naturally and then it was like so then it was a big conversation around let's try IVF oh okay and then and then so the Sarah thing was kind of like wow how generous and how amazing but no thank you and it wasn't until March 2022 so that um, I was doing a lot of work 
um, in the Northern Rivers where I am at the moment near Byron, when the floods came, I have this propensity to jump into crisis. It's like when I absolutely shine, I just get, seem to go on ultra get shit done mode. <laughs> and so I was helping out set up evacuation centers and things. And Sarah's husband, David, is a um, has a radio show on the Gold Coast. And his co-host had said, we should interview Lisa. She's doing all this work with the floods. And I didn't know that David was Sarah's husband. And after the interview, I get this text and Sarah says, oh, you were just on the radio with my hubby. How's the IVF going? And I on text was like, not great. Still want to be a surrogate. <laughs> and like, we've already had not talked about it for, I don't know, years. But I think and we've reflected on that conversation over text a lot. I think it was because I was literally helping save people from floods in major crisis mode that I was probably at my most vulnerable. And I was just like, oh, I'm just going to ask, like, put it out there. Anyway, so she comes back on text and is like, yep, let's do this. And I was like, wow. okay, let me just keep doing the flood stuff and let's talk in a few days. And she was extraordinary. I think that afternoon she went and checked, got herself into different medical appointments to check if, you know, everything was still in working order, if she could carry. And like literally, I think by the end of that week, she was like, I could do this. Like I'm all good. And um, yeah, we started the journey. <laughs> was it hard for someone that obviously seems to want to help others? Do you think part of the reason that you, I guess, were hesitant at the start is because it's really hard to accept help of that gravity i think definitely i mean it's like i mentioned it before on my own birthday every year it's funny because i am quite public and i display extrovert qualities but actually i'm quite introverted and i don't really like the attention on me which seems crazy since i jump on stages all over the world and i you know am always on social media but that is all very 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 much a learned behavior for me so i don't really like the spotlight on me and I don't like having to ask for things I feel very comfortable the people pleaser in me <laughs> feels very comfortable helping other people but part of what Sarah and I sharing together now is the power of friendship and community and vulnerability and that there are so many people and in our case you know I so desperately wanted a baby but my tummy's broken as we go to say to our bump but you know Sarah had this great longing to carry a baby again she loves carrying babies and she said when Stephen and I said to her why do you want to do this she said when I'm 80 and sitting in my rocking chair I want to look back and go I helped someone and it's actually been that makes me feel a bit emotional I know, <laughs> oh. I know. <laughs> but it's been after um eight years of so much hell on so many levels I have to say this experience with Sarah has been and is the most extraordinary gift. Like every day I wake up just smiling because it's like, you know, obviously going along with Stephen and doing it together is amazing. But now we have like a best, best girlfriend who we text and I don't know, phone call and FaceTime and DM on Instagram like 20 times a day. And we're so close and so connected and we're just having an absolute ball together and so I think yeah that's what we were saying before I think being vulnerable and asking for what we need is 
is such a gift. And for people pleasers like me, or in this case, Sarah, it actually is a great honor for a lot of people to be asked to do something and to step up. So that's something we really learned, the power of friendship and community and, you know, sharing things together. And yeah, and we're both kind of loving it. So yes, but she is an extraordinary next level amazing human (laughs) there must be such a close bond for those that don't understand how surrogacy works can you let us in on the process yes absolutely I would love to because uh I didn't know anything about this and one of the reasons that Sarah and I are sharing about it publicly with the blessings of our hubbies and hubbies to be um Stephen is very my partner is very private and he was like we're never sharing anything but then he read through Sarah I'm my messages like because he was like let me see how this all started and then he he started crying and he's like you have to share this story like this is going to help so many people which is so beautiful so surrogacy in Australia is altruistic so what that means is you can't pay someone to be your surrogate. Unlike in America, it's very big business. So there are agencies in America that connect you with surrogates and, you know, it's like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's like a very big, big business over there. In Australia, it is just the goodness of someone's heart. So in our case, and what I would suggest to people, because it's actually so easy really in Australia compared I mean everything's relative compared to everything else we've done this has been easy so be unafraid to ask people or put it out there we're looking for a surrogate because it is actually amazing how many people have since said oh I would carry it or I'd love to carry and we might take other people up on that for our other five babies (laughs) um so you find someone then what you need to do is you go through a three-hour counseling session so with the four of us so David and Sarah, Stephen and I, we did it over Zoom and we did it with a guy who's just the most beautiful man called Ian Trevelyan. I'm sure if people Google, they can find him. And that is really to ensure that, you know, we're all in this heady space of how exciting, we're going to do this. It's kind of flipped. He asked the difficult questions like, are you really all on the same page? Because you've got to get aligned on like all of these things. Sarah, how will you feel? carrying the baby for nine months and then having to hand it to Lisa and Stephen. Like, so you go through all of that in the counseling session. Then Ian gave us a psych test, which by the way, you can't fudge. <laughs> it's one of those ones that's like hundreds and hundreds of questions that you have, you know, you basically answer the same thing like 20 different times. So you can't try and trick it. And then it kind of looks at you know, are you emotionally aware and stable and ready for this? That process then goes to our fertility clinic. And so so you would need to have embryos or you'd need to be going through IVF or, you know, whatever to create the embryos to go into the surrogate and also to a lawyer. So we used a guy called Stephen Page, who is based in Queensland, is an expert in Australian surrogacy. And he then draws up a contract, which is, you know, sensible and it's a necessity basically saying you know that we're not allowed to pay Sarah but we will cover all expenses so for example we treat her like me so anything medical like any um, appointments she needs to have or medications anything she needs like maternity wear or massages like anything that I would be having if I was pregnant we cover financially and that is 
more or less it. <laughs> so the, the counselling and the legals and then the fertility, fertility clinic inserts the embryo to Sarah. And then we basically go just as business per usual. <laughs> In the hospital, um, we're having two rooms. So it's kind of like we're both so excited. It's like a big sleepover. <laughs> um, so, and then Stephen and I are there for the birth and for everything. So our obstetrician said, bring swimmers. I was like, what for? He's like, if Sarah wants to get in the shower, get in the shower with her. If we decide to have a water birth, I'll be in the thing with her. Like it's, and when our baby boy slides out, I catch him. He's on my chest, skin to skin first. So yeah. Um, and then we all need to leave the hospital at the same time because the baby, we then need to go through basically an adoption process um, to adopt our own baby. So that's where it's slightly complex and important to have, you know, a lawyer who's on board who could do all the paperwork and everything. So that's essentially the process. Lisa has generously given all Ready or Not listeners 20% off her incredible range of products. Use the code readyornot20 when you check out at collectivehub.com. And how have you planned for your maternity leave? Are you going to take a certain amount of time off work? You own your own business, so it could run a bit differently, I imagine. It's been a lot of mindset work. The reason being, because I've waited sort of eight years and I've had my business for 22 years in October, um, I've made a decision that I want to step away completely for at least eight weeks. I did say originally six months. I'm like, let's just see. But I mean, I want to step away from everything. And a lot of people who have their own businesses will relate. Like even when you go on holiday, I kind of like skip my emails or I do a social post or, you know, you're always on to a degree. And it's hard because as I said, I love, love, love the business, but I'll say, and, but I want to be as present and grounded and 100% in emotionally for this phase with our baby boy that I actually need to make really strict rules for myself more than anyone else. My team are amazing. I mean, they've known about this forever. So they're all like, we've got it. You don't need to do anything. But I want to like not open my emails at all, not, let's say, do social media at all. I'm sure I'll do a little bit. But because what happens is, you, you know what it's like you open your email there's one email there and it it actually can throw you in a bad or a good way for the rest of the day or week like a big deal comes through and suddenly you're like but I should just jump in and like do this or something comes in like a shipment has not landed on a wharf properly or something and then I'll be like duh, 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 duh. like I just don't want I need to separate my energies I think for the first time in my life in 22 years and actually say, no, I just want to feel into what it is to be a mother and be in that energy and be in being rather than doing all the time. And also I'm a big, you know, I've written several books on finding your purpose and your why and things like that. I also think just stopping. I mean, my best ideas have always come when I give myself the time and space. So I also want to just sit without the external noise of my current reality and current job and career, because sitting in that, I don't know, I might come out the other side and be like, actually, this is what I want to do now with the rest of my life. What would you say has been the most challenging part of the journey for you? I think 
the hardest bit is definitely not now. We're, we're actually, it's all actually beautiful and easy and just so in flow now. I think without a shadow of a doubt, the hardest thing has been the, how much the industry is unregulated and the amount of people who have um, preyed upon us um, and our vulnerabilities. And by that, I mean, you know, as well as IVF, we tried so many things. So that at one point I was doing um, acupuncture three times a week. I was taking 90 tablets a day. I mean, that sounds like a lot, but they're like little tiny, 50 of them were little tiny, tiny little bullets that you throw in at once. But we went to a woman, because you're desperate, right? You're desperate and you'll try anything. Someone recommended a woman on the Northern Beaches who promised us, I mean, you know, that I can get you pregnant. She was $9 a minute and she would often, we'd turn up, you know, we'd drive, we're living in Bondi at the time, we'd drive an hour to get there and she'd be off playing golf and wouldn't turn up for like two hours and then. That would be soul crushing. We've just had like a lot of really horrible, horrible, horrible people trying to take advantage. And so I feel, I mean, that used to, you asked before how I coped, you know, when I was working and that was hard because we'd have experiences like that. And I just wanted to scream, you know, and often I would cry and be just really angry and upset. And then, you know, you front up to work and people don't know what's going on. And yeah, so I, I don't know. I would like to see that the industry becomes much more regulated. It's unfortunately in our experience, it's been so dirty and money grabbing and just horrible. And there was eight years of that um, and we've had some really horrible people through that time and so it's I think the time now like our um, you know and I wouldn't even mention other people who've been previous but I would say you know Anne Trevelli and the counsellor incredible you know Stephen Page the lawyer incredible um, our obstetrician um, Dr Drew Moffrey love 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 like Sarah you know this whole journey just we have this incredible beautiful amazing team but prior to that there's really not anyone that I would want to ever give a shout out to. <laughs> I found trying to conceive a very emotional journey and mine in comparison pales totally. So your vulnerability being stretched to those limits, I genuinely cannot imagine. And I guess this is a great time to ask, what advice would you give to anyone navigating fertility challenges while trying to especially remain focused at work and putting energy into other things that make them happy? I think one of the biggest things is, I don't have the answers. Like I've definitely walked many paths <laughs> and I've found a way in the end. What I would say to people probably is just stay open to what, you know, if you want a specific outcome, whether it be having a child or anything in life, stay open to what the path may end up looking like because you know it kept changing for us and at the end it was like well we want to have a baby that's the outcome we want so you know this is the way that we've ended up and as I said like I actually couldn't imagine a more beautiful way to be bringing our baby boy into the world now like it's the most extraordinary gift so find your own way and I think be careful who you listen to because that and I don't know about your experience but that became very overwhelming for me as well because everyone's suddenly like oh just relax more or have you tried this so, and sometimes you're just like oh shut up oh, <laughs> being no. told to relax is never a good idea <laughs> let alone for someone going through IVF yeah so I think 
unfortunately, I don't have the answers. I would just say, just try and find your own way and stay open to what could be possible. And I think what I definitely learned was originally, I thought the only way to get pregnant was naturally. And then I learned there is IVF. And then I learned, you know, if you wanted to, you could get donor sperm or you could get donor eggs or you could get donor both. Like um, you can have a surrogate, like there's so many different ways to actually bring a child into the world. And so I think whilst when the IVF wasn't working, I nearly gave up and I thought that was it. I didn't really even know about surrogacy. So if you keep staying open and peeling back the layers, it is extraordinary. And you go, ah, oh, there is a way. So I truly believe now for anyone that absolutely is a way. I mean, it's going to cost you financially for sure and emotionally for sure and physically for sure. But, you know, there is a way in the end. So yeah, just keep going if that's what you really want. What about support? What can friends and family do for someone going through this? Um, I think, I mean, I felt very guilty the whole time because, you know, my mom and my sister, like every time we would put an embryo into me, I was like, yeah, we're trying. And then like two weeks later, 16 times, I had to ring them and say, not this time. So that's like a lot for them as well. And I used to feel guilty. I was like, do I not tell you? Do I tell you? Um, I think if people can just be there for you and not even necessarily ask. In fact, this is good for anyone grieving or going through any hardships. What I've learned is don't necessarily keep asking someone, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? Like, just do it. So like cook someone a meal, drop off some flowers, just like little things that might help brighten their day because it can feel very lonely and isolating. So I think, yeah, I think that's actually good advice I mean we've actually started cooking for Sarah and her she's got three kids and her hubby and we just make like big batches of spag bowl because it's easy for her and things like that lasagnas and things that they can just pull out of the freezer and like we don't even ask now we just like you know whenever I see her we just deliver a big batch of stuff and I think yeah just just do I think that's the best thing just do because it actually gets tiring when people keep because you also start feeling like a victim when people are like oh you poor thing like what can I do for you and you just and then you don't want to be a burden so you're like oh no it's okay but those little gestures of cooking someone a meal dropping over some flowers asking someone to go for a walk just just doing I think rather than just constantly asking what can I do. How did you get through those times when you're feeling perhaps at your lowest or somewhere in the lows, when you'd hear that someone else is pregnant near you. I know, I can already tell that you're a caring person that would always want to be happy for someone else's news, but there would have been times where you couldn't necessarily be in that place. How did you move through that? Yeah, do you know, and it's such a hard one because now I'm on the flip side and now I, having been on that side for eight years essentially, um, now I almost feel guilty so there's a lot to navigate around all of that right um like a very very dear friend of mine um oh well Chloe Fisher who I was on her podcast recently and um she and I were in LA at the same time and she's had lots of years of IVF and things and so we were kind of like soul buddies kind of going through this together and now I'm like you know just entering our third trimester and Chloe's still not there and so like I have terrible guilt and I feel like oh and 
Yeah, so I it, it's hard now being where I am and also trying to be happy for myself. But yeah, so that sort of thing, yeah, people, I mean, it was constant, right? For eight years, people would be like, I'm pregnant. And I'd be like, <laughs> part of me is, of course, happy. And part of me is like, oh my God. Or more so there's the people who say, oh God, we got pregnant. I wasn't really wanting this. <laughs> or like, oh, I like, and I'm, and it just like happened. And I'm like, are you freaking serious? I used to actually say to people, I'll have it, I'll have it. And I was like, a hundred percent serious. <laughs> I was like, we'll have it, we'll have it. Because I was like, seriously, we want a baby so desperately. And you're like, literally like, oh, damn, we got pregnant again. We didn't really want this. <laughs> it's such a hard one, isn't it? I, I... It's all hard. That's yeah. all, it's all hard from all angles, from all angles from everyone, because I didn't want to dampen people's joy. I wanted mm. them, I wanted to be happy for them. I want them to be happy. Now I'm on the other side. I don't want people to feel bad, but I also don't want to take away from my own happiness. I feel like I've earned it after all these mm. years. So it's a really interesting one, isn't it? And it I totally resonate with, even though as I say, like I can't I can't liken my experience to you. It took us eight months and it just happened without assistance in the end. But it yeah. felt like leaving a friend at a bay when they weren't pregnant yet and you were. And it was so hard it's so hard trying to grapple with your own excitement, but mm -hmm. also wanting them to be happy. That's why as well podcasts like yours are so important telling the story so that hopefully it gives other people hope and other people know that you know surrogacy is an option or you know that there are other options to help them on their journey it just like you said before it just depends at what point you're ready to not give up but like change direction and be open to that for me it was 16 rounds for other people it might be three <laughs> you just got to work out where you're at in the journey and what feels right for you it's very independent I think I'm loving this theme of staying open. I think it's some of the best advice I've heard on this podcast so far. <laughs> My last question for you, Lisa, you're meeting your baby boy soon. What excites you the most about hearing those words and thinking about that? Oh, I just, I get so emotional every time I think about it. And it's really, you know, it's one thing saying words and it's another thing really feeling into it. And I was saying to Stephen the other day, like sometimes I'll just be like, we're having a baby because it'll, it'll come out. And like when you just said it then, it really connected with me and I really try and connect in with it rather than it just becoming a story. Oh, yeah, we're having a baby. Oh, yeah, we did eight years. of Like now it's getting very real and I'm just so excited just to have like that skin to skin. Our intention is just to have, you know, at least two weeks of just us and him in the house together, you know, nude in front of the fireplace. It'll be sorry for the visual, everyone, but like lots of just skin to skin because I haven't carried him. I just want to be, you know, as close and really just there and nurturing and stepping away from the frenetic and the people pleasing and, you know, having some boundaries, lots of lessons there because some people want family want to come and stay and we're like no two weeks just us maybe come see us in the hospital but then it's really important for me to 
just allow ourselves permission just to be with him and soak him up and squeeze that little bottom and touch those little feet and oh. look into those little eyes. Oh. I feel emotional <laughs> just thinking about it. Keep the people away as long as you can. That is my advice. You don't owe yeah. anyone your baby. That is your baby. Enjoy yeah. that little bubble. I know. I feel, um, yeah, I feel very protective of him and I feel like, We've waited so long that I just, I don't want him to be passed around. I want to be selfish for a little while and just be like, just be with me, be with mama, be with dada. You know, we just want to be with him and not have to, not have to be there for anyone else for a while. Yeah. Little bubble of nurturing. <laughs> oh, it's a beautiful place to be. And while you're about as connected to the pregnancy as could possibly be from what I can see, I imagine still there's that sense of you really wanting that physical connection when he is Earthside. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, Sess and I, last weekend, for example, we took her three, her and David's three kids to SeaWorld for the day. And then Sarah and David came and joined us for the last sort of hour or so. This weekend, we're going to stay together. I've organised a girly weekend at the Langham on the Gold Coast. So we're, Sess and I are going to have treatments and like a beautiful morning tea and then we're doing dinner and then staying over the night so we're doing like lots of pampering together and I we're there together lying together I'm like feeling his little kicks and everything so I feel connected but yeah I haven't carried him so I just I just want to hold him like forever I mean maybe that's not good parenting <laughs> don't worry I want to hold my son forever so it's fine we're fine <laughs> I don't have attachment issues at all <laughs> There's a lot more therapy down the track for him and I. Yeah, yeah. No, they say attachment, it's good, it's good. So it's okay. Well, Lisa, for anyone that wants to find you, where can they look online? Um, So Lisa Messenger and also Sarah and I have our, we set up a little Instagram to follow the journey, which is mummy at last. So Australian spelling M-U-M-M-Y at last. Um, or Collective Hub is my business one. So, yeah. That is one lucky baby and I've absolutely loved hearing your story and I hope it brings some hope to others. Thank you so much for sharing it. Thank you, Lucinda. I absolutely loved it. What a beautiful podcast. Thanks for listening to Ready or Not. If you liked the show, please tell your friends, subscribe or write a review. You can also find us on Instagram at readyornot.pod. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.